And I think that goes even for the folks that you hire. Like when you get too many Jacks and Jills of all trades, you've got too many people who have too many opinions about too many things that they only know a little bit about. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it almost works better when you've got sort of a Jack or a Jill at the top who knows crap when they see it, but also is like, yeah, I don't know how to write the SEO copy for this, or I don't know how to build the video. Like that's what I hired you for. And so it's beneficial to have you know, individual contributor types who are specialists in their role and pay them for it. Don't pay them cheap just because they're low level, because those are the people who are the actual doers who enable all of this stuff to actually work and run smoothly. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. Welcome back to another episode of the Social Complex Podcast. I am your host, Hillary Applegate, and today we are going to be chatting all about demand generation in B2B. And before you snooze off, I have you know, this is a really great conversation. Amanda and I get into some fun little nitty gritties on what it means to be creative in B2B, how to stand out among the competition, how to structure and organize lean teams where budgets are not always a flowing and how to be really strategic about getting your message out there in the world and prioritizing customer experience to get the results that you are looking for with those more complex B2B sales. Amanda DePaul is the founder of Methodical, a consulting agency helping B2B companies modernize demand gen to more closely align with today's buying process. She is passionate about ditching old school lead gen tactics in favor of developing creative acquisition strategies and delightful customer experiences, along with measurement techniques to match. In this conversation, we talk about the transition of demand gen in a technologically booming world, what it means to retire the third party data cookies that are coming down the line and how organizations are going to be marketing in light of that shift and the importance of moving away from a downloadable funnel cycle into a experiential customer serving mentality. It's a great episode and I hope you tune in and enjoy. Let's get into it. I don't know what era you were in MySpace and Facebook, but there was almost this oh. idea of like anything goes. And then all of a sudden you look back and you're like, oh man, the internet is forever. <laughs> oh, so MySpace was high school, junior high for me. And that was like, it's, you know, where we all learned to code first of yes. all. Um, and yeah, <laughs> like everybody knows how to do like at least basic coding because of MySpace, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, then you translated all of that over to Facebook. Facebook was a thing when I was a freshman in college. Like I went off and I was like, oh my God, there's this new thing. It's Facebook. It's so cool. You have to have a college email address to use it. And then, yeah, we just put our entire lives there and thought there was going to be like no repercussions at all for what goes there. And I just deleted my Facebook, (gasps) which is the anti-marketer, I guess, side of me. I deleted it, but I exported the whole thing before (laughs) I deleted it. Yeah. How could you not? I mean, I had to keep it. It's like a time capsule, but it was horrifying. I can imagine it would be mortifying. (laughs) I was, I was a few years behind you. Facebook came out when I was in high school. 
uh, two high schoolers and I deleted my MySpace and was like, I'm never going to see this again. I'm kind of sad. I wish I had kept it. I missed it. I know. It was embarrassing oh. to be sure. Um, but yeah, there's some golden, golden nuggets in there that I wish. And like you had your, um, what was it called where you stored all your photos? It was like uh something fish anyway i had like a, you had to have like a separate account where you would store all your photos oh so that you could like link You're to them so from myspace right. i can't remember what it was called i can't remember what it's called but i lost access to that too and it has every single high school photo in it <sighs> ever so those are all what gone, a weird probably or they're, they're out there. probably out there i know photo bucket <laughs> i think that was the one that we used photo bucket that's the one photo that bucket yeah they've actually been emailing me for a year saying they're gonna delete my account and I was like bet I dare you go for it <laughs> do it <laughs> it's scary in there oh, I but I feel like that fringe mm-hmm. timeline of like now I feel younger generations have an awareness that what's on the internet is forever and that almost forces into that like over curation and over analyzing maybe yeah I think we like swung the pendulum the other way. Everything has to be perfect, I guess. Like we're all like a persona online, but not in an authentic way, I guess. Like I definitely had a persona when I had my MySpace, oh. but it was still very much like me. Yeah. And now you kind of look at people, you know, the rise of the influencer and all of this stuff. And you're just like, Ever, no, is any of this real? Is anyone out there real? I don't really know. <laughs> what um, is reality? That is the... What is reality? Honestly, Amanda, that's kind of the whole genesis of this podcast. What is... <laughs> what is it? Why are, Why we, are here? we here? What are we doing? Uh, Amanda DePaul, <laughs> so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I am so excited to get nerdy with you about all things demand. Jen, a cookie-less future in the marketing world, and really, what is the reality of marketing in this ecosystem of technology? To get us started, I would love for you to give an introduction into who you are and your background and what came after that uh, fabulous MySpace to Facebook trajectory. My career built on MySpace. Um, yeah, I so my background is in largely B2B tech. I actually got my start in PR right after college. I thought I wanted to go be a events superstar and then realized very quickly, I don't really love talking to strangers <laughs> to their face. So I decided to get into digital marketing. Um, and yeah, 12 years or so in the startup B2B SaaS space, lots of leadership positions running demand gen, growth marketing, performance marketing. I even ran an SDR team at one point. So very like pipeline tracking, heavy background, heavy ops background, and sort of excited about all things digital experience now is what that is sort of translated into. So coming from such a dynamic experience working with different sized organizations and and leading different teams that fall, you know, a little bit on the marketing side and a little bit on the sales side, you know, what are some of the commonalities or things that you've picked up along that career where you have said, okay, this is tried and true, and this is not changing, even if the technology is changing? I think the thing that isn't changing that maybe it's never changed, but I think it's something that we deprioritized maybe uh, in the last like five years or so. And we've had to start to reprioritize now is the customer experience. So 
what is the experience that a lead is having with you, whether that be on your website, whether that be in an event, whether that be with your sales team, you know, is that a cohesive, consistent experience? And is it a pleasant experience? I think we got sort of distracted by tracking and analytics and automation and all of these things that marketing was sort of able to bring to the table with the rise of all of these technology solutions that gave us all of this information that we were able to provide and say, look at all this value that we're providing. And we kind of got away from the actual experience itself. And so I think now, especially since pandemic and everyone's sort of trapped at home and everyone's starting to buy B2B software the way they buy address off Instagram to an extent, I think that they have to start to think about what is the experience that we're providing customers and leads with our brand outside of just what we're able to track. I have seen customer experience and and the ownership of that differ in different teams as far as who owns it, whether there is a tried and true CX team, whether it does live with customer service, whether it does live with sales and marketing What, in your experience, is the best mix or the best home for who is driving that ship and focus and prioritization on customer success? I've seen it in a lot of places. I've also seen companies not have really a dedicated function for it at all. Having worked with a lot of smaller companies, that's something that often falls by the wayside, which... To be honest, I think is a little bit of a mistake. I think that investing in customer marketing or like customer experience resources early is a way to A, prevent churn, but B, sort of like lend a hand to that, you know, creating an experience early that people are going to be like excited about. But as far as where I think customer experience should live, it, I think that with a digital team, or a digital, I guess, educated team is ideal because I think we think about customer experience in tech and we think about go-karting events and like dinners and all of these things that are like very in-person. But again, since the pandemic, all that stuff had to go away. And so it was like, how do we provide a customer experience online that is appealing and exciting for customers in the absence of like all of this in-person interaction. And so more and more, I was seeing demand gen leadership or brand leadership, even communications leadership to an extent, take on customer marketing because they were sort of at least educated in the way of like, here's how we can create an online experience for our customers. And I think that that probably should stick, to be honest, because then we're talking about upsell and customer stickiness and community and all of this other stuff that lends itself to revenue growth in the long run. And at the end of the day, demand gen is really about growth. And so it makes sense for it to live somewhere in that realm of the marketing team. And I want to dive into that a bit, because I think that's a really good point around how the world moved digital and that in-person interaction went out the window for quite some time in especially many years, decades in the business world. What are some of those customer experiences that you have either personally brought to life or seen brought to life in the B2B marketplace that have helped to move into more of that customer-centric experience, even in lieu of being able to be in person? What I've seen work, um, I can tell you a little bit about what was tried, I think, early on. I was in a leadership role at a company where we kind of 
tried to sort of re-engineer the in-person experience online. And I think that was fun for a second, but then everyone got really burnt out on like the cooking classes and the game shows and all of the stuff that they were trying to like take those in-person experiences and put them online and call them the same thing. People burnt out on that really fast with Zoom fatigue and all of that. So I think that that worked for a second, but I think what really it came down to was people were looking for community. And I think people are still looking for community, honestly, because I don't think we're out of the woods on this whole pandemic thing. I think people have spent the last three years inside. And they're kind of looking around going, I've been by myself (laughs) for three years. How do I have some human interaction that is meaningful? And so I've seen companies double down on creating, you know, like Slack groups, Facebook groups, their own communities, like investing in community software and creating their own communities from scratch, where people can share ideas and knowledge. And whether that be about the product itself or about something related to the product or whatever, I think people are really hungry for those kinds of experiences now. And so I think investing in digital community, social media, those kinds of things in the future, especially for B2B brands, is going to sort of either augment or replace somewhat some of the like in-person sort of cheesy experiences that we were calling customer marketing in the past. Yeah, absolutely. With the whole moving CX into that digital community and, and really prioritizing that, I know that there's a lot of scrutiny around digital marketing because it does offer so many metrics and you do have a plethora of ways to slice and dice success with community building and with CX where when you're offline, you're not worried about those tangible nitty gritty, you know, metrics, but because you're online, that does that provide a little bit more of scrutiny around whether or not it is successful? Yes, but I don't think it should. So this is where we kind of get into, you know, even outside of customer, like to, like level it out a little bit and talk about brand advertising and advertising campaigns that maybe don't necessarily result in that one-to-one magical conversion that you can point at and say, Joe Schmo downloaded this asset after he clicked on my ad and then he turned into a customer and yay for me, Mr. CEO. That is a thing of the past. If it ever really even tangibly was something in the first place, that that experience, that journey doesn't happen, I don't think very often. But what it does give us is this like plethora of information that we're able to then go in and say, you know, adjust the way that we measure things and say, okay, well, we saw pipeline go up when we posted these kinds of things in the community, or we started these discussions. And now we're seeing X, Y, and Z product um, picking up. Um, And so you're going to have to think about how you measure differently if you're thinking about more of like a a customer experience or a community experience type way of going to market because that one-to-one sort of interaction that triggers a buying cycle that then triggers a sale isn't going to be a thing in the future because people just don't buy like that anymore, except for maybe if we're talking about really, really large enterprises with procurement teams and buying teams and all those kinds of things. But when you're talking about, you know, mid-sized small business startups, you know, that's not how they're, they're seeing an ad, they're seeing a, a thread on Reddit, they're seeing something that's interesting to them and they're clicking into it. And then we have to figure out how to measure that interaction in a way that isn't just 
you know, I can identify that this one person is the source of this sale. Yeah. So let's let's get into that a little bit. As far as demand gen for these startups in B2B tech space, that buying cycle has to be a lot more complex and than if you were dealing with, you know, lunch boxes or something easy. I mean, right. <laughs> sometimes I would love to just have something that was like very simple. But I think we sort of thought we were going to be able to accomplish that with like product led growth. We were like, oh, we'll just let people free trial or do it themselves or whatever. And it's like, well, software still requires some semblance of handholding to make it work to an extent, yeah. especially when you're talking about, you know, corporate level software, not just like an app. So unfortunately, yeah, it is more complicated than just buying a lunchbox. So let's talk about how you are structuring those programs. You know, one, is it a playbook that is easy to replicate across teams or is it much more dynamic because the customer is very different and the organization and resourcing that they have is going to be different? I think it doesn't have to be that different, but I think that it ends up different because of what you're saying about resourcing. So so often, I think a lot of these kind of smaller startups <clears throat> don't invest in advertisers or brand people or content like creative people. They invest too early in demand gen people or analytical type marketers because they think that by being able to measure it, that sort of proves out results. And so therefore, it's, it doesn't really matter how we got there as long as there's something to show for it which doesn't work long term. So I think that, you know, so we can I think B2B can honestly learn a lot from the lunchbox sellers about what kind of go-to-market advertising strategy makes sense. I don't think that it's terribly different especially in how people buy today where I think it's up to I was just reading this, it's up to like 86% of the buying cycle is pre-conversation with sales. Like it's all online. You're doing your own research, you're digging, you're hearing from your friends. You're not, you know, downloading a piece of content and then waiting for sales to sell to you anymore. And so that means that begs more creative content, more engaging content, more delightful experiences that, to be honest, B2C has been doing since the dawn of time, like, you know, Mad Men style with these engaging, you know, ads and B2B sort of relied on, let's put out, you know, content marketing. Let's do these long white papers. We make people fill out a form to download, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think that that works anymore, but that's still, I think, what people are leaning into because those are the resources that they often have is like the demand gen analytical sort of performance marketer and less the creative type. So let's talk about what that would look like if they were to shake it up. In a perfect world, if you could in a perfect sprinkle a little bit of (laughs) magic salt on everybody and say, here's the new way B2B. This is how you should approach it. And this is the structure. What would you come in with that recommendation? What would that look like? I think it's um, having a resource of some kind to help you really understand your buyer, what the persona outside of even just, you know, what do they care about at work? It's like, who are they as people? What are they into? How old are they? What does their family dynamic look like? What kind of education do they have? What do they do on the weekends? Like those are the kinds of things that you need to understand in order to be able to put together programs and offers that are interesting to them. Because if you just put out there, you know, here's a product brief, please download it. 
they might, yeah. but it's it's a much longer. It, they've gone further down in the funnel before they're doing that, and so to capture people higher up in their buying journey, you're going to have to appeal to them as actual people. And so, if I were a startup, like a Series A startup, and I was putting together, I've got one marketing hire, and I've got three more headcount that I get to hire. I'm definitely hiring a creative person, whether that's a brand person um, who's like holistic or it's a it's a like content kind of producer type who can do video and create, you know, social media, engaging social media imagery and create ads and create a really cool website. Like I'm definitely reserving at least one of those headcount for somebody like that. I'm also probably investing in someone who is up on PR specifically, I think, from a digital perspective. So today we're seeing, I think, PR sort of blend with the, you know, SEO and social media and kind of all digital placement, um, including the stuff that you own. And so having somebody who knows how to optimize all of those sorts of channels to expand reach, I think is really important. And then maybe my third hire would be like a product marketing messaging type who can help really like hone the message that we're trying to put out there and frame it in a way that appeals to whoever my persona is. And then, you know, a year down the line, I'm looking at a traditional sort of lead gen or demand gen person, if that's the direction you want to go. But if you've done it right, in my opinion, if you've done it right, and you've really created a really cool experience for people and you have a good product, you don't need the lead gen type person because they're just gonna it's like a build it and they will come sort of situation you know who I feel like does a really fabulous job of this is I'm not sure if you're familiar with them but Sprout Social Mm, yeah um so they run their uh you know social media management software analytics tool and I worked in that space for a very long time and they were always so beneficial from a informative standpoint, the amount of research that I got from them, the amount of information that I got from them, the access that I got from them. And they're not the cheapest on the market, uh, but they're also not the most expensive. So they're this very nice like middle ground and they appeal so heavily to those lean teams that do need access to that research and aren't going to be able to be you know, buying $8,000 reports here and there whenever they need it. So I think that there was something really valuable in that aspect of content that they provide, knowing that that's positioning them with their core audience to come and try their products. Yeah. And I think when you're talking about something like Sprout Social or even I'm, I'm thinking about HubSpot, for example, back in the day, I mean, HubSpot was the repository for marketing, like content marketing, inbound marketing, how to. And even if you weren't a HubSpot user, you were getting all their, your information from them. And to this day, I think they still do a really good job of that. Maybe you couldn't afford HubSpot but maybe you were using something a little bit lighter touch and you were at least familiarizing yourself with the space, like the marketing automation space. So that when you did eventually have the budget or whatever to kind of like level up your game, you were probably going to go pick HubSpot because you just learned everything. HubSpot taught me everything I know. You know what I mean? So I think that there's, there's benefit to like playing the long game for some of these brands to help just familiarize yourself with the space. And maybe you can't afford us now, but you'll probably keep us in mind later. And I think that even has benefits to what we're talking about, which is, you know, the future without a third party cookie, bringing more people to your site means more first party data for you. So 
whether or not they actually buy whatever it is that you're selling on the first or second go at interacting with your brand, you're able to capture them and start to kind of get to know them and build a digital relationship with them so that, yeah, when they are ready to come by, you know enough about them that you can be super relevant in whatever it is that you're targeting. So it's just a longer game, I think. Amanda, you said something that just triggered like a, a idea in my head that I had not thought about before. But with B2C, we focus so much on building that relationship and that rapport and that loyalty and having them stick with us and not, you know, being brand agnostic. But what you were saying about having the long game with these B2B, employees move a lot and their resources change a lot. And they're in their careers for a long time. So that is such a key difference between B2B and B2C when you're thinking about marketing. Yeah. And if you think about it too, it doesn't mean that a a person, for example, me, I'm not staying in the exact same size and exact same budgeted company for my entire career, especially working in startup land, right? Like the lifespan is like five seconds. So (laughs) you know, my next company (laughs) might, which is a whole other topic, but my next company might have more money or might have less money. And so the more I familiarize myself with every marketing automation tool or every ABM tool or whatever is out there, every social media management tool, I know how coming into a company to say, okay, this is the right one for us based on our budget and our needs right now. And two years from now, when I go to the next place, maybe that's not the right one. Maybe it's the other one that I worked with three years ago or that I heard about three years ago or whatever. So, you know, yeah, there is something to be said for just appealing to like as broad of an audience as you can so that you're top of mind when their situation is right for to purchase. I love that. So we, you mentioned the, the cookie list world and the end of an era for third party data cookie tracking, bring out the smallest violin to say a little ode. I don't know when it's going to happen. They keep pushing it back. But what are your, what's your perspective on the end of cookies? So first of all, Chrome is the one, Chrome is the holdout. Mm -hmm. So Google is the holdout on the cookie situation and they own just over half, I think, of kind of the browser market. So half of your audience probably already isn't using third-party cookies in the first place. So there's, there's that. I think that the biggest, the biggest hit here is going to be the DSPs that are using third-party cookies to like populate what they're selling you and then obviously google retargeting just sort of in general but if you're using you know linkedin or you're using an abm tool or you're using contextual advertising already really this isn't going to be a huge impact on you if you're already doing the work to kind of like establish a first party cookie or a first party tracking strategy then you're in great shape if if your whole strategy is like google retargeting or programmatic advertising with these DSPs that use third-party cookies, and you're not collecting any data today in a meaningful way, then I think you're going to be up a creek a little bit because all of that data is going to go away. With the programmatic, I feel like programmatic was the prettiest girl at the ball in 2017 and now is having a little (laughs) bit of a reckoning. How have you seen that industry 
begin to pivot to be able to survive or evolve through what will likely be a, a very challenging and fundamentally changing environment on how they work? I think they're doing as the best they can to almost become like uh, their own like opt-in sort of database that they are then able to allow their customers to tap into. So I'm thinking specifically about the use case with like ABM tools, for example, and like all of those ads that you can purchase. Those companies are now going out and kind of creating their own advertising campaigns, their own tracking campaigns where they're basically doing like lead gen or like opt-in sort of subscription type work to then allow their customers to tap into through their tool. So I think, you know, it just means that those companies are going to have to invest budget into almost doing their own marketing to get people to opt into the content and then their partner's content. That's what I'm seeing a lot of like the ABM tools do in some of these programmatic folks. I'm curious to see what the inventory is going to look like on Google because the inventory theoretically is still going to be there, but the targeting capacity is going to be changed. So what's that going to do for supply and demand? I don't know. So it's interesting because Google is kind of like, don't worry, we're still going to have these APIs and we're still going to have all of these like ways of sort of still providing value to the advertiser while protecting the consumer's privacy. I think they've been a little tight-lipped about what that actually looks like. Like I've heard a lot of different things about what that could mean. I think that it means that Google likely is going to kind of go back to being the sort of like keyword-centric targeting situation, like pay-per-click advertising, display advertising, those kinds of things. I don't think that, and I might be wrong, but I don't think that the targeting capabilities that they have for your customer, so like the retargeting off of your own website and those kinds of things, I don't think any of that is going away. So retargeting when somebody interacts with your presence, like your web presence, is still going to be allowed. It's just the third party stuff where like a cookie is being placed on somebody else's website that is sort of similar to what you do. And then they come to your site and then you leverage that information to serve ads. That's the piece that's going away. So I don't know that it's going to like blow up the whole system, but I do think that it's going to require marketers to get a little more creative and to our point earlier, really understand their audience so that they're not just kind of like lazily relying on this sort of third-party data to put their ad wherever it's most relevant without them actually intervening with where it actually goes. And I think having them come back to your website is, you know, crucial, but also capturing when they are on your website. And, you know, what what are some of the ways in which, back to that idea about customer experience, that you see the most successful B2B marketers doing it in a way that is meaningful and thoughtful and actually impactful. What I hope doesn't happen because we did so much work in the last like five years to quote free the content, right? Where we're like, stop gating every freaking thing on your website. Like nobody wants to fill out a form. Nobody wants to download your long freaking ebook. But I think that people are interested in getting notified when there's bite-sized, interesting content, video content, those kinds of things that come out. And so just simply getting someone to subscribe with an email address is all you really need to be able to put a digital name to a face, for example, like in that first party kind of built starting to build that picture of that user, 
And so having, you know, like a really robust blog and doing a blog subscription, having a really interesting newsletter and doing a newsletter subscription, that kind of stuff, I think is going to go a lot further than, oh, we're going to go back to the days of yore where we were putting a bunch of long form content behind a bunch of gates and hoping somebody would fill out this complete form. And we're going to go back to that way of doing Mm -hmm. things because nobody wants to fill out your form. And also we sort of trained everybody not to want to fill out your form because we were banging that drum for the last five years. That's true. um, How do you think that B2B content marketing is going to shift with the adoption of more generative AI search functions that give you an answer rather than a Google search platform style where you put in your keywords and then it gives you a bunch of sites to source through. How do you think that's going to impact content marketing? I think that we've already sort of seen a shift to this even before the generative AI conversation started becoming so relevant. Because I think when you really look at actually like Google searches and what pe- how people search and um, how your content gets served to them, most often, especially I think younger generations, have been treating Google like that, like typing in a question and trying to get an answer for a long time. Like we're not typing in, you know, like keywords to try to get, we know what we're looking for. We know what we want the answer to. Um and so, and I think Google's sort of responded to that in the way that they even provide search results now, where you've got your video comes first, pretty much always, you've got your quick answer sort of snippets next. If there's a really great answer, like it's highlighted immediately at the top of the page without you even having to click into anything. And so I think that has sort of been the experience in the past. And B2B companies have responded to that by providing a lot more content that is very like, I'm answering a question that I think somebody is going, I'm anticipating somebody is going to ask. So I don't know how much it's going to change. I do worry a little bit about the quality of content that comes out with more, as we discover the power of like chat GPT, for example, and like, if I need a blog post, I can kind of have chat GPT write it for me, but I'm a little worried at like the quality of that content and like the repetitiveness of that content, I guess, like, I hope that people still do their best to like use that as a jumping off point and then think about, you know, their unique perspective on whatever it is, because otherwise everyone's just going to have the same answer to the question. And then how do you differentiate yourself at all from the other guy? I will say, I think that we're going to see a lot of personality rising to the top still, because like you said, it's, if it's all the same and if it's all just looking, you know, and feeling the same or robotic and naturally the humanized element is going to rise to the top. And I think that really puts the onus back on, the importance of, you know, tone and voice and brand yeah. onus so that you can really lean into it, which also is something that historically with B2B companies, either they're really great at it or they really do not see the value in it. Yeah. And and that's a great point. I think that goes back to kind of my original thought on who do you hire first when you're like a B2B startup and you're trying to figure out how to kind of like stand out. That personality is so important. And so often it doesn't come until way mm-hmm. later in a company's life cycle. 
And so I think establishing that sort of personality up front is really important. So that's where like that AI can help, like as far as the subject matter goes, but you still have to go in there as a creative to say, okay, here's how we're putting our spin on it or our personality on it. And maybe over, you know, over time, AI, I think is probably going to get better and better at even that piece of it. But I think that it's still on us to make sure that our content is engaging. Actually, a brand that comes to mind on that front is monday.com. Are you familiar with? I am. I love (laughs) monday.com. This is not, I'm not sponsored. Shout out to (laughs) monday.com. Shout out. Yeah. But they've been, I mean, I was a very early user of monday.com just because I stumbled on it because their content was really good. Like they were really heavy on video. Their social media was really good. And so I think that personality, they're like a little witty. They're a little quippy. Like they're a little sarcastic. They're very much calling it like it is. Like that personality is what drew me to monday.com over all of the other bajillions of project management systems out there. And so I think that that personality is still going to be so important to inject into any content that comes out of anything produced by I love that. I think it's a really good example. And I remember some of their early commercials. They were very low budget. Yeah. Very, very lean budgets. Yeah. And I think that just goes to show that when you hire the right people and you hire, you prioritize the right talent, you can get a lot out of very little. I think people think about creative marketing and brand marketing and advertising and those kinds of things as being very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. And it can be, I mean, you go out to some of these agencies and you're going to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a brand. And that's just the brand. Like, don't even get me started on all the assets that have to come with it. But if you hire scrappy people who have startup mentality, who are also super creative, I think you can, you can get a lot of bang for your buck out of those people. um, And really, stand out amongst everything is so noisy right now. Um, but that's how you're gonna, you're gonna stand out. Let's talk about the scrappy mentality. I feel like with the lean teams and having that hungry, hungry mentality, wanting to really produce and provide and, you know, give great insight and and great creative ideas. I, I feel like there's a catch 22 in these environments where it can be really exhilarating and creativity can thrive because, you can throw ideas out there with pretty low risk of, you know, if there's nothing else there, I can't really like feel that bad, can I? But can't get any lower than bottom. <laughs> do you all I also on the other side of it can see where sometimes there is like an analysis paralysis where there's too many cooks in the kitchen because when you are a startup, everyone wears a lot of hats and there's a lot of input and there's a lot of differing ideas and there can be a lot of bold ideas in the room. How have you seen that work out where there's that nice fine line of, hey, let's go ahead and move in this direction and not get lost in all of the different ideas and and creators in there, but still, you know, bringing out that creativity? I think it comes down a little bit to people's egos. And so especially in earlier startups, like hiring, it's really appealing, I think, to hire sort of a CMO or like a VP level type marketer who has a lot of ideas and is like that scrappy sort of startup mentality, but they've got like their ideas. And so they want to hire people to sort of like execute on whatever their vision is. And I think that's when you get to the analysis paralysis, because you get somebody who's too close to it, who is sort of like too high up in the food chain for anybody to kind of like push back. 
And I think that they get too hung up on like whatever their vision is. And so it's almost better to have sort of like a flatter, I feel like organization early on in marketing land where you've got people who are sort of almost operating as like an internal agency where they're working together to come up with ideas and fail fast and be creative and those kinds of things rather than getting so hung up on like, well, if this video fails, then like we don't hit our revenue goals and like everything crashes and burns. I think you need that voice, but I don't necessarily know if it makes sense in a marketing leader type that early in a a company's lifetime because they get too hung up on like the numbers and they think they're creative and it just like all clashes together and makes for sort of a nightmare environment. So (laughs) you need someone who's like a little bit dissociating, who's like, yeah, guys, you're geniuses. Go do it. This is great. I'm going to have your backs. Like you need that person, but you don't need like the VP who's like, I love writing ad copy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're going to write ad copy someone who dives there. a little bit too deep in the weeds. Don't yeah. do that. I think startups think they're getting like, a, you know, a bang for their buck when they hire people like that. I'm one of those people to an extent, to be honest, like I mm-hmm. have a leadership background, but I, I love writing ad copy, but like, and yeah. so they think, Oh, I'm going to get someone who can do everything. And then we try to grow like that. It really doesn't work because that person yeah. is way too close to it. And they're way too like interested in everything to just actually like support the creative people that they've hired to do their jobs. Yeah, absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. I think that leadership just, you know, needs to be enablement and providing the context for teams to thrive, uh, not necessarily doing all of the nitty gritty work themselves. Cause I agree with you. It, it is a little bit conflict of interest when you're so close to it that you almost lose that objectivity too, to, to say, hey, I love it, but this is missing the mark a little bit, potentially, and here's yeah. here's why, but not from an emotional standpoint where it's like, oh, well, I created this, and this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I think we should do it like yeah, this. Yeah, none of that. Yeah, and I think that goes even for the folks that you hire. Like, when you get too many Jacks and Jills of all trades, you've got too many people who have too many opinions about too many things that they only know a little bit about. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it almost helps... <laughs> Amanda, that was a really great way to say that. <laughs> so many too many's. It just kept coming out of my mouth. Um, too many. The too many people. They have. They get too involved in things that they are not experts in, and so it almost works better when you've got sort of a Jack or a Jill at the top who who knows crap when they see it but also is like, yeah, I don't know how to write the SEO copy for this, or I don't know how to build the video. Like that's what I hired you for. And so it's beneficial to have, you know, individual contributor types who are specialists in their role and pay them for it. Don't pay them cheap just because they're low level, because those are the people who are the actual doers who enable all of this stuff to actually work and, and run smoothly because the video guy isn't going to have necessarily an opinion about the copy on the screen to an extent. So, yeah, I think that's a really great point. And as far as, you know, building out and scaling teams, there's only so much you can invest when it comes to headcount. There's always going to be that resourcing gap and, and issue as far as who to scale, how to scale, when to scale. And a lot of companies have looked at automation to help empower that. What is your perspective on automation in the demand gen lifecycle? I think that automation early on in your kind of company's growth stage, I think automation is best in sort of like the middle of the funnel when we're talking about 
to be honest, the SDR. And I don't mean to dog on SDRs at all because they're super valuable. But I think that there's a lot that can be done, especially when we're talking about how people are buying today. They're doing a lot online. They're making a lot of decisions before they even want to talk to you. That really it's like, okay, hire really good marketing people to do kind of a lot of the manual work that gets them in the door and then do a lot of automation as far as like the communication and outreach that happens once they have identified themselves. So the emails and the advert like the ads timed to when they are engaged with certain stuff on your website and the sales outreach timed to when they hit a pricing page or all of that kind of stuff. Like that can all be really automated and then hired, you know, really good salespeople like AE types to field that information and actually create opportunities. I think that so often these small companies hire a bajillion SDRs and think that if they build it, they will come. And then they reduce their budgets on like the marketing side, for example, or they reduce their budgets on the type, like the talent that they hire on the AE side. And they put too much pressure on the SDRs and then and the SDRs can't be successful without a good marketing machine or without a good AE machine. And so automate that until you get to a point where it makes sense to actually have, you know, a more high touch experience in the middle of the funnel would be my advice. So Amanda, last question for you. Thinking about the future of demand gen in the B2B space specifically, how do you think we are going to be shaking out over the next three to five years? What do you think is going to change and what do you think is going to be the same? I kind of, I can tell you what I hope and what I think just based on what I'm saying. I, I love think, an optimist. I know. I think demand gen as a term probably should die, like should go away. Um, I think we should go, we should be thinking more about people's functions and their expertise, right? So like, think about advertising, think about video production, think about bloggers, like think about all of these pieces of demand gen and focus more on that than like the demand gen person who's the jack of all trades, because that worked when we were relying super heavily on automation. We had all these tools at our fingertips and people were buying in a very traditional way and it doesn't work anymore. So I think we're going to shift into more of like a creative future, I think. I think we're going to have to. Um, I also see, though, those demand gen types really getting into the role of the analyst type. And so how do we actually, all this goodness that we're doing, how do we measure it and like prove our impact on the business? Because demand gen people are really, really, really good at that. That's why we have jobs. <laughs> we're able to say, look at this thing that I built and how beautiful my baby is. Um, and then convince you to like, keep giving us money. So that is, I think where it's going to go is like the demand gen person is going to be able to look at all of the activities that we're doing, look at all the data that we're collecting, that first party data that we're collecting all nice and tidy now going forward, hopefully, and be able to really like kind of pull the levers and prove out how things are working in a way that goes beyond just to my earlier point, Joe clicked on an ad, downloaded a piece of content, turned into an op because that's not how we're going to be able to measure in the future. But I think demand and people understand that. And I think they're who you're going to want to tap to be able to kind of shift your measurement strategy going forward. 
Well, Joe, downloading that white paper, thank you for keeping some people in job. In the meantime, we are going to be moving to a better, brighter, and more creative future. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me on the pod. Thank you. Go ahead and let listeners know where can they find you, how can they follow you, how can they learn from you, and how can they hire you? Oh, well, they can find me at methodically.com. Um, they can also just Google my name, um, Amanda DePaul, and find me on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect. And yeah, I'm here and I'm ready and I love to talk shop. <laughs> I love it. Be sure to check out links in description to get in touch with Amanda. And thank you so much again for coming on the pod. This was thank a you. fun conversation. I so love fun. this stuff. Me too. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.